Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to welcome as my guests Dr. Dan Riddle, who is Professor in the Departments of Physical Therapy, Orthopedic Surgery, and Rheumatology at Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Robert Pereira, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Biostatistics at Virginia Commonwealth. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about an article that they recently published in PTJ. Its title is The Womack Pain Scale and Crosstalk from Co-Occurring Pain Sites in People with Knee Pain, a Causal Modeling Study. I really enjoyed this article and look forward to discussing it with both of you. Let me start by providing our listeners to a brief summary, and then we can talk about the study. The WOMAC, or Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Pain Scale, that's quite a mouthful, quantifies knee pain severity with activities of daily living, but the potential impact of pain in other body reasons, regions on WOMAC pain scores has not been explored using a causal modeling approach. And so these investigators did a study to determine if pain in other areas of the body were associated with WOMAC pain scores, a phenomenon referred to as crosstalk. And they used data from two large data sets, the Osteoarthritis Initiative, or OAI, and the Multicenter Osteoarthritis Study, or MOST. They used causal modeling and provided evidence of crosstalk in both data sets, evidenced by significant increases in our square values as additional pain areas were added to their models. They argue in the paper that crosstalk appears to be clinically relevant as a source of error in the WOMAC pain scale, which they believe has important implications both for arthritis research and for score interpretation if used in clinical practice. Okay, let's let's start by talking about the WOMAC pain scale. And as both of you know, it contains five items that focus on a person-level activities of walking, stair climbing, sitting, lying down, and standing. Very basic uh, mobility tasks. The stem of the WOMAC scale asks the patient to focus on the extent of their pain in the involved knee or hip during these activities. Now, here's my question. Given the person-level focus of this measure, might function be the concept being measured instead of pain? Said another way, are there good data on the validity of the WOMAC pain scale as a measure of pain? Well, Alan, this is Dan, and I'll go ahead and, and, uh, and, and give this a first attempt to answer. Uh, for for people with with knee pain and uh, a particular focus in this study, of course, given our data sets, where people with with osteoarthritis uh, of their knees, 
or at high risk for osteoarthritis of their knees. Uh, the Womack pain scale and the Womack scale in general is basically ubiquitous in the uh, knee osteoarthritis and knee pain literature. It's a uh, it's a measure that uh, has been around for decades and uh, has has assumed a, a place of of uh, respect, I guess you'd say, for uh, for researchers doing doing work in the area of knee pain and knee osteoarthritis. So uh, one of the uh, limitations of using the instrument is that it's very commonly used and expected to be used on uh, on patients with these kinds of problems. Your question specifically deals with um, whether the Womack pain scale uh, might be a measure that reflects function more than pain and uh, whether there's any uh, any validity data for the Womack pain scale specifically, and and the answer to that to that to the latter question is there validity data? The answer is yes. The uh, associations between Womack pain scores and a variety of sort of generic pain scale measures, verbal, visual, analog scale, uh, SF36 bodily pain scale, and so on. These associations are, are quite high. Uh, Pearson associations anywhere from 0.7 to 0.8, 0.85. So I think the validity data for Womack pain is quite good. And in fact, there's, I, I think, a fairly substantial body of literature to suggest the Womack function scale is where the problem lies. And uh, I'm happy to talk about that more, but want to uh, defer to Robert at this point to see if he would like to add anything. Um, sure. You know, I I think um, you know generally when we think about um, what something measures in terms of validity, that's the most challenging thing to prove when we think about examining psychometric properties of a measure. And so, you know, whether this may, you know, what we name that construct, I think is is difficult to decide. And whether this is pain or pain related activity only, or you know function-related pain, I think, are things to consider when thinking about validity. I did look a little bit this morning at some of the validity evidence. Usually this is shown with things like convergent validity. How well does this correlate with other pain measures? And how does it, with discriminant validity, how does it not correlate with other things? And sort of from my look this morning, there was really a range of correlations. And some were not as high as we might expect, I think around 0.4. Others were higher, up to 0.7. Um, but I think there was a little bit mixed evidence from my brief review today. Yeah, um, I think you both make really fair points. Uh, I asked the question in part because it's something I have struggled with in my own measurement work where I've had trouble differentiating a functional pain measure from a, well, let's say, a functional difficulty measure. They seem to be very highly correlated, which has always led me to question the distinctness of, of the two. And that kind of leads me to my next question. In the article, you talk about the fact that it's preferable for our measures to represent a single construct, in other words, to be unidimensional, and I'm with you entirely with that. 
And so you suggest that evidence of crosstalk would indicate a measure is not unidimensional. So might crosstalk also raise questions about the validity of a measure that is attempting to be unidimensional? Or am I misreading what you're trying to say? Uh, this is Dan. I'll, I'll give that one a go, Alan. Um, first of all, back to, back to your uh, your point about uh, in your first question about this scale being uh, capturing person level activities. One of the sort of concerns that that one can raise about that issue is when using the OAI and most uh, data are collected per knee because the investigators of those studies were interested in. Uh, knee-specific osteoarthritic change and prediction of that change over time and so forth, that scale is not actually designed for uh, knee-level measures, but it's been applied and sort of been accepted as, uh, as reasonable. Um, that is sort of an aside to what we did, but it is an issue that uh, sort of uh, piqued my interest when you when you uh, raised that first question. So I wanted to, to clarify that point. Um, crosstalk is somewhat related to that issue of uh, person level versus knee level measures. And I think the, the key here, what we were interested in is, does crosstalk affect a measure of knee level pain with activity, which is what the WOMAC scale was designed to do in the context of OAI and most uh, data collection. And I think the answer to the question is crosstalk does influence knee level measures of pain with activity a la WOMAC pain scale. Uh, and the, the extent of crosstalk describes the extent to which the validity of the inference about whether this scale is truly capturing knee level pain with activity, uh, our data, I think, raises questions about the extent to which you can make that inference. But I think the strength of our study is that it, it provides some method for uh, either a clinician or, or uh, an investigator to quantify the extent to which that validity is compromised. And uh, so that, that, I think, is, is what our paper can do for the reader. Um, Robert, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that characterization that, um, you know, when we're trying to measure any outcome, we want, I think, as pure of a measure of that outcome as, as we can achieve. Um, and when there are other factors that influence that measurement, now we realize we're not just measuring pain in the knee or pain with activity in the knee, but um, we're also measuring some of these other factors, back pain, lower extremity pain, uh, contralateral knee pain. And so if we want to look at change in that outcome or just the level of that outcome, we have an issue that it's not just knee pain we're measuring anymore or our target knee pain that we're measuring anymore. So um, in a sense, that is a validity issue. Um, it doesn't mean we're not measuring that at all. We're still measuring that. That's probably still the dominant feature that we're measuring, but it's also influenced by these other factors. Yeah. 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 Makes you know, Alan, sense. I, I would like to, if I could, kind of go back to your point about this 
extent to which these two measures, pain and function, are, are associated with one another in a multi-item scale like WOMAC. WOMAC is, uh, as we talked about earlier, has been around for decades, and its, its development occurred at a time when I think it's safe to say the, the level of sophistication of, of psychometric development was not where it is today. What the developers did was they uh, recognized the importance, and I think it's safe to say that when treating patients with knee pain, particularly with knee osteoarthritis, throughout the spectrum of disease, uh, what's important to patients is the pain they feel in their knee and how it affects their daily life. And so the developers saw the importance of those two constructs and tried to measure them separately. Where they fell short, I think, is they wrote the questions, the, the, the individual items, almost identically for several of the items. So, for example, the question about pain with walking appears in both the Womack pain scale and the Womack function scale in almost identical language. And some investigators in the past, Stratford et al., Pua et al., have done creative designs to tease out the potential extent to which one of these measures uh, influences the other. And so what they've done is they've measured patients, for example, getting knee replacement preoperatively and then measured them again almost immediately postoperatively within a week after surgery at a time when pain is typically about the same as it was postoperative or preoperatively, but function, particularly performance-based function, is much, much worse. And so what they did was they measured Womack pain and function preoperatively, measured Womack pain and function, say, a week postoperatively, and in addition did self or, uh, excuse me, performance-based measures, a certain walking test, uh, stair climbing test, six-minute walk test, and so forth, and compared those scores preoperatively to postoperatively as well and found this very consistent pattern that Womack pain and function scores really stayed about the same, uh, but performance-based measures showed very dramatic worsening from pre-op to seven days post-op when you expect patients to be able to not get around very well because they're still uh, recovering from a major surgery. On top of that, they've done, used other self-report functional status measure, particularly the lower extremity functional scale, which is worded very differently from WOMAC and found substantial worsening in that score from pre to post as well, whereas WOMAC physical function stayed about the same compared to pre-op. So that to me is a nice conceptual way of thinking about how closely related WOMAC pain and function scores are independent of how the patient can actually perform activity. And to me, that suggests that the WOMAC function scale is really driven by the patient's pain and their perception of their, their difficulty with activity. So when the, when the question asks about, when the WOMAC physical function scale asks about how difficult are these activities to do, a, a main driver of that difficulty is pain. So uh, I, I sort of buy the idea, this is indirect evidence, but I sort of buy the idea that WOMAC physical function scores are driven to a great extent by pain because when patients assess 
and, and think back to their difficulty with doing activities, pain is a driver of that difficulty. So that, uh, that to me is uh, conceptually why the Womack pain and Womack function scales are so closely related and really spuriously interconnected in a way that uh, potentially creates problems in their usage. I think you make some really good points, Dan, that, um, and I particularly like your point about it's easy in 2020 to look back on the WOMAC, which was created decades ago, and to criticize it for some conceptual confusion. Yeah. Uh, but I agree, they're very useful. I, I don't mean to suggest they're not. But when I look at it from a measurement perspective, I've all, always struggled with conceptually what are they really measuring with these scales. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I look, for example, if you look at the ICF, they clearly categorize pain as a body function and function as an activity limitation, mm -hmm. whereas Womack seems to combine the two, which I've always struggled with. It in no way raises questions about your study. It's just I was struck by um, these issues when I read your study. Yeah. You know, I think this, this fairly substantial body of literature on this, uh, the extent to which these two measures are so closely related to one another, are, really argues for, and this sort of gets at something you might get uh, a little bit down the road here in our discussion, but it really gets to the point of whether one should really be using both scales on, a, on an individual patient over time. And, and I think this, this prior evidence really argues for selective use of either the Womack pain scale or a very similar uh, pain scale such as the Coos pain scale, along with another scale that attempts to measure physical function in a, in a different way using different descriptors and different items than what, what appear in, the, in either the Womack or the Coos pain scale. That's kind of what we have found in our research in developing functional measures for use in an OA, um, using both a difficulty function measure and a pain function measure didn't really add a whole lot, so we ended up going with one and not both. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your results on crosstalk. You found evidence for crosstalk both in the OAI and the most data sets. And you point out rightly that the extent of crosstalk meets or exceeds the MCID estimate in WOMAC pain of 2.0. Um, and you go into much more detail um, in your article, which I would recommend that listeners take a careful look at. But given your findings, would you recommend that clinicians continue using the WOMAC or possibly choose other person-level measures that do not attempt to have patients attribute their pain on activity to a specific joint? In other words, what's the advantage of using something like WOMAC, which is an attributional measure, given the presence of crosswalk that you've shown in your study? using a, a knee-specific measure on a patient being treated for knee pain makes good sense. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, 
I think that the, the likelihood of of measuring true change over time is better. Uh, the the responsiveness of that type of scale would be better than a say a bodily pain measure, for example, a more generic scale. Um, but I do think the clinician needs to be aware of the notion that the if they're using a Womack pain scale or if they're using a Coos pain scale, two of the most commonly used knee-specific uh, pain scales that are that are used around the world, that uh, it's likely that uh, it's certainly from our data, the Womack pain scale is going to be potentially affected by pain in other regions. I think it's very likely the Coos pain scale is as well because it contains five of the items from the Womack in addition to four uh, uh, additional uh, items. I think I think they could they should still be used. I think if the clinician is more sophisticated about what the what the uh, score might mean when taken into consideration whether the person has pain in other body regions, that it can still be informative. As Robert mentioned earlier, you still are capturing uh, the dominant feature of that measure is likely the person's pain with activity of their uh, index knee. But there is this potential for dilution of, of that true measure from pain in these other regions. So as long as pain in these other regions are accounted for, for example, if you're assessing a patient over time and the pain in their low back and the pain in the contralateral knee stays about the same uh, and their uh, Womack pain score goes down, that's probably a reflection of improved index knee uh, function and less pain with activity. So it, it's it's an issue where one has to account for what's going on in other joint regions to, I think, correctly interpret the Womack pain score. Robert, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, you know, thinking about this more statistically, I think we you think about what type of error this might be in terms of our measurement. That if we're trying to measure specific knee pain, um, anything that's going to change that true measurement is an error, and that can be a systematic error or a random error. Um, and random error we usually think about as measurement error. Um, if it's you know a random error, these in a sense cancel out over time, cancel out over individuals. So our estimation of, of effects using that outcome, um, you know, are, are less affected um, when it's the outcome. Um, we still have an unbiased estimate of things like change or treatment effect. Um, if it's a systematic error, then, then that can introduce bias. So if there's some way where systematically people's measurements are being affected, this can then introduce bias into our uh, estimates of our outcomes, and that becomes a larger issue, I think. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's clear. Oh, I way others might think clear. about it. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's very clear. Uh, from a measurement point of view, it's the systematic error that I would worry much more about than the random error. And I, and I think it re remains to be shown the degree to which there is a lot of systematic error in this measure when used with people with uh, with knee pain, particularly people who have widespread pain in other areas of the body. That's the subgroup that I think is most problematic when you try to use an attributional measure. At least that's my perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. 
Let me, if, uh, if that, uh, Alan, is, oh, go ahead, uh, sorry, if, if that, it, you know, I, I think we hope that our paper does have some impact on daily practice and uh, a clinician who reads our paper and sees that there's a, an, a systematic error contribution when a person has pain in multiple body regions while they're treating the patient's painful knee, if that clinician uh, tracks over time the extent to which this other widespread pain either changes or doesn't change, will influence the extent to which a change in their Womack knee pain might be meaningful. And so I think a clinician can get a, 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 a fairly good handle on the extent to which a Womack pain change over time really reflects change in their knee uh, pain with activity or whether it reflects changes in, uh, in improvements or worsening in back pain or worsening or improvements in uh, contralateral knee or lower extremity pain. So I think it, it, it allows a clinician to, to have a more sophisticated interpretation of a WOMAC change over time if they consider these other body regions. And I think you very nicely answered my final question, Dan. And I'm sorry, would, Alan. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm really delighted because um, it really sets up for my final comment, and that is I want to encourage listeners to take a look at the article because I do think your findings have a lot of clinical relevance, and uh, I think it's important for people to become more aware of these kinds of factors when they use these measures, both in clinical practice and in research. Any final comments from either of you before we wrap up? I would. Uh, this is Dan again, Alan. I would. I would like to say that the uh, the study that we did uh, was conducted primarily on individuals with on the sort of lower spectrum of uh, both osteoarthritis severity and symptom severity. And one of the limitations we talked about in our paper is the fact that we don't know the extent to which these findings may generalize to people with more substantial disease and pain. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's a direction of future work that we hope to explore or we hope others will. And we also don't know the extent to which these findings may generalize to other measures. And uh, it's been real, a real pleasure for me to work with Robert, who really helped to enlighten me about a, a causal modeling approach and also a way to register an observational study prior to actually conducting the study, which I think is a great way to enhance the rigor of, of an observational study. You know, we've all seen proliferation of... Uh, of uh, clinical trial registries and how important clinical trial registries are to judge whether a trial was actually analyzed and conducted in a way that the investigators planned, which enhances rigor. And this uh, this method of, of um, registering observational studies of any type on a, uh, a, a free access, free to use, open um, registry, I think, is something that uh, Journals should uh, should support and and endorse to uh, again enhance the rigor and and reduce the risk of you know changing a plan midstream when you have your data in front of you and decide to analyze it 
and it doesn't align with what you originally planned, the reader, of course, can't know that. So um, I think there are there are things that we've discovered primarily uh, based on Robert's advice and guidance here that I think could apply to a lot of do a lot of other uh, um, outcome instruments and a lot of other non-experimental studies that uh, that we see published all the time. Well, you make a really good point, Dan, and it's something that uh, I think all journals need to consider, including PTJ, so that's something we'll certainly be looking at because we do not require that uh, currently for our journal. Right. Well, let me thank you both for taking the time and for publishing your work in PTJ. I really enjoyed both talking with you and in reading your article and encourage listeners to go take a look at it. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks so much.